do you change the channel on your television set? Anybody? Remote. You use a remote to change the channel, to turn the volume up, to turn the volume down, to turn it off, thank God, because the babble box drives me nuts. But you do also have to turn it on from time to time. But you use a remote to change the channel to adjust the volume of your television set. You also use that remote to start the DVD playing or to do anything else that you want to do to control the TV set and your sound system from over on your couch. But when I was a kid, we didn't have remotes. Well, to be more accurate, when I was a kid, I was my dad's remote. Greg, get up, go over there and change the channel. And that was back when you had a dial. In fact, you had two dials. You had one dial for the VHF and one dial for the UHF. Remember that? Wow. And you had a dial for the audio and the V-cold and all that other stuff. You had little dials for that. The TVs have changed. I don't even know where the manual controls are on, for my TV at home. All I have is the remote. And if I lost the remote, I couldn't turn the TV on or off. Ooh, wow, that's actually a pretty good idea, isn't it? <laughs> no, we use remotes to control a television set from across the room. We use cell phones to communicate with people when you're out traveling. You use telephone to call people and have a conversation with them from a distance. You use smartphones and iPads and whatnot to access email and to check the, your directions and your location when you're traveling. Use your computers and your laptops to send emails and to write papers and, and to read the, the websites and to do all sorts of things. You have all these different kinds of instruments. You have cars to travel in and bikes to ride. You have all sorts of different kinds of instruments to do all sorts of different kinds of things. And many of our instruments we use to communicate, to receive messages, and to send messages. These are all instruments or means of communications. Well, in the study of God, we have an area or a field of the study of God that deals with how God communicates to us, and specifically how God communicates grace to us. Grace, the, the Greek word is charis, and it means unearned or unmerited, undeserved, and unearnable favor, love. Grace is God's unearned, unmerited favor. And how do you receive grace? What are the means of grace? What are the methods of receiving grace from God? There are many means of grace. More means of grace than I could ever completely list. There are the common means of grace that we all know about. We, we experience them on a regular basis. There's the reading of the Bible. That's an important means of grace. When we pick up the, the Bible, the Holy Scriptures, and we read them, God's grace is communicated to us. When we sing hymns of the faith, God's grace is communicated to us. When we hear the choir sing a beautiful anthem, God's grace. I know God's grace was communicated to me as they were singing this beautiful anthem this morning. As we fellowship together at breakfast today, God's grace was communicated to me by conversations that I had 
with many of you gathered around tables, standing in line, thinking, okay, do I want to have two or three sausage patties, and then joking with you about what that meant. I mean, if God did not mean for us to eat pigs, he wouldn't have made them taste so good, would he? Amen? Amen. Means of grace. How do you receive God's grace? There's scripture, there's hymn singing, there's the anthems of the church. There's fellowshipping together. There's Sunday school classes. There's Bible study. There's preaching. There's teaching. There's service ministry, reaching out to the last and the least and the lost with a cup of water and some food and some clothing. There's building houses and repairing structures with UM Army or Habitat for Humanity. All forms of service ministry and service charity are means of grace. Doing them, we receive God's grace. The sacraments of baptism and Holy Communion, where we come and we receive the bread and the wine and are fed with the very real presence of Jesus in the Holy Eucharist, these are means of grace, the sacramental means of grace. And the study, the field of theology that deals with the means of grace and how grace is received is sacramental theology or sacramentology. We theologians love really big, jaw-breaking words. It simply means the theology of the reception of grace. How is grace received? How is grace given? How is grace employed in our living? That is the subject of sacramental theology. That is the subject of means of grace theology. That is the subject of my doctoral dissertation, sacramental theology, the theology specifically of the means of grace in Holy Communion. As I said, there are many means of grace. You can enumerate some of them, but there are so many more. Indeed, means of grace can surprise us at how we encounter them. I can remember traveling north, north of the Arctic Circle, on a cruise up to the Spitsbergen Islands, which is the furthest north inhabited islands on the, on the planet, and Longyearbyen, the furthest north inhabited city on the planet. Went up there during the middle of summer, 2010, and while we were up there, I had the amazing experience of standing out on deck one night and watching as the sun set in the west. But before it reached the horizon, it stopped going down and began to process into the north, across the northern horizon, across the North Pole horizon, and down to the east, where it then started to rise again. I stood out all night long and watched the sun process across the northern horizon, realizing that it would not go down. I was looking over the North Pole. It would not go down for me that day. And I was amazed at God's glorious creation. I was amazed at God's amazing handiwork. And the beauty of that night, the reds, the blues, the greens, the yellows, the oranges of the sunlight as it cast across the atmosphere, thickly across the north, was amazing to behold. To stand out there at 3 o'clock in the morning and be looking at the sun was awe-inspiring. 
It's similar to how I am when I go out at night with my telescopes and set them up and gaze at the beauty of God's handiwork in creation. As I was looking at these beautiful sights, I'm receiving God's grace through the beauty of God's creation, which is a means of grace, through my eyes, which are means of grace, through my mind, which can be a means of grace. Indeed, grace comes to us through many instruments. Grace always comes to us. Human beings seem to be wired to receive grace from God through instrumentality, through things, through mediating factors, the Bible, worship, fellowship, service, and yes, indeed, the sacraments of Holy Communion and Baptism, remembrance of baptism, confirmation, and yes, indeed, giving. There are many means of grace, but these are the biggies. And giving is today front and center. Not just because we've started up a, a stewardship campaign for the year, but, but more importantly, because giving is a principle, critically important and often neglected means of grace. And it's one that we have here in today's reading from the letter of St. Paul to the Philippians. He's speaking here to a church that has supported him in his ministry. He would preached in Philippi and founded churches in Philippi, and then he had left, and he left Macedonia and gone on to Thessalonica, where he had preached and taught there, and then on south to Corinth, where he pastored, served, and founded and pastored one of the most troublesome churches he had, the churches in Corinth. A district superintendent would give up on them. I feel sorry for them and, and for Paul, because the, the Corinthian church was, it was an absolute trouble-ridden church. In fact, we're lucky they were trouble-ridden because he had to write two powerful letters to them. Actually, he wrote more than two powerful letters to them. And we know about church conflict, and we know about church disagreement, and we have a deeper understanding of the theology of the faith from the first century because Paul had to write these letters, especially the letters to the Corinthians. The letter to the Philippians is special. Far from dealing with problems, he's giving thanks to God Thanks to God for the grace that he has received through the ministry of giving of these Philippian Christians. Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 4, beginning at verse 15, You Philippians indeed know, you Philippians indeed know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. No other church supported Paul in his mission and ministry, even after he had left Philippi, even after he left to go on to Thessalonica and on south into Greece. They still supported him financially, prayerfully, they supported his ministry with good things, with gifts of offerings of money. They supported him in his calling, in his mission. Even after he'd left them, they supported him. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs more than once. This wasn't just something that they did on the spur of the moment, because they thought it'd be a nice thing to do, they did it multiple times. More than once they supported him, even after having left Macedonia while in Thessalonica. 
For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs more than once. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that accumulates to your account. As he says earlier, I didn't really need it. I have all that I needed. I didn't really need it, but you gave it to me. It's a beautiful, wonderful surprise that you gave me these glorious gifts, this wonderful support in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that accumulates to your account. I've been paid in full and have more than enough. I am fully satisfied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will fully satisfy every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul is giving thanks to God. For the wonderful grace that he has received in this beautiful gift, because that's what grace is, a gift, a freely given gift. And this beautiful gift that he has received, this financial support from the Philippian Christians, several times at least, more than once, they have supported him. Now the language that Paul uses here in the letter to the Philippians is interesting, and it gives some people problems. He uses the language and vocabulary of banking, of finance, and business. Or, given where we live here, he uses the language of commerce. Think about it. He uses the words shared, giving, receiving or receipt, sent help, as in money sent, for my needs or requirements, gift, offering, and payment, profit accumulating with interest, account paid in full. There's nothing like seeing a bill with the stamped paid in full on it, friends. Paid in full, fully satisfied, fully fulfilled, completely fulfilled. He uses these economic banking and finance and business terms to talk about the gift that he has received from the Philippian Christians. Wow. He also uses the language of worship, the vocabulary of worship. He calls their gift a fragrant or a sweet savor offering. He calls it a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Both of these terms are found in the Old Testament about sacrifices that are made at the altar at the, in the temple in Jerusalem. In, in Leviticus chapter 3, verse 16, it talks about how you are to take the offering, the meat offerings of thanksgiving that you offer up to the Lord as a burnt offering, the kind of offering he's talking about here, and you take it and you burn it together with the fat portions because as it says, and as I love it says, all the fat belongs to the Lord. 
That means a whole lot of me belongs to God, right? Amen? I wish I had a bumper sticker that said, All the fat belongs to God. Amen. That ought to be the, 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 the motto of Weight Watchers. All the fat belongs to God. Why? Because fat's yummy. And when you cook it and it boils, it smells amazingly good. It creates a beautiful smoke and it creates, creates a wonderful odor. Oh, my brothers and sisters, God loves barbecue. <laughs> wow. Well, it, it, that's how it seems in the Old Testament. It shows Yahweh gathering to smell and to be pleased by the wafting odors of the burnt sacrifices and the sweet savor offerings in the temple. And he is pleased and greatly pleased in the fat offerings and the meat offerings that come in thanksgiving for the grace that has been received. This is the language that's being used here. These are the terms that Paul is using in worship terms. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. And then, Paul slips in a mixture of these financial terms and these religious terms. He uses the term God, fully satisfy, every need of yours by his riches his wealth and his glory his doxa riches being financial doxa being religious by his riches and glory in christ jesus he he has taken the financial terms and he's taken the religious terms and he's pulling them together in this beautiful glorious blessing and my god will satisfy, will pay in full every need of yours according to his wealth and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul doesn't shy away from using financial terms. Paul doesn't shy away from using worship terms. He doesn't shy away from using them together here. To speak about giving as a means of grace. As a means of receiving God's love and God's favor. As a means of entering into a walk of faith with God. As a means of receiving from God God's very real presence. As a means of sacrificing to God, giving thanks and praise to God for what we have received. He doesn't shy away from using this language. Think about the meaning of the word worship. It's also a financial term. Huh? In the Old English from which it comes, it's a contraction of two concepts. Worth and ship. Uh, assignment of worth. What do you get, uh, consider of greatest worth to you? What do you consider worthy of your devotion? What do you consider worthy of your time, your presence, your attention, and your service? What do you consider worth the greatest in your life? Where are your priorities, in other words? What, is prior, what has priority, what is primary in your life? Well, 
How do you spend your time? And how do you spend your money? What do you find yourself thinking about? And what do you find yourself doing? How you spend your time, how you spend your money, what you find yourself thinking about, what you find yourself doing, these questions, if you answer them, will tell you what your priorities are. And that's what you worship. That's where you have your worth, your value. In the church, we talk about worship, ascribing to God great worth, the greatest worth of all, because He is God. Ascribing to Jesus Christ great worth, the greatest worth of all, because He is our Savior. Ascribing to the Holy Spirit great worth, the greatest worth of all, because He is the very presence of God living in our midst. We ascribe to the Creator, to the universe, great and ultimate worth, at least with our words. But do we do it with our resources, with our time, our talents, our gifts, our service? Do we do it with our prayers, our presence, our gifts, our service, and our witness? Do we tithe? Well, that's an interesting question. I thought tithing was about money, giving 10% or more of my financial resources. It is, but there are other ways to tithe too. Let's take a look at the tithe of time, the tithe of your time. There are 24 hours in a day. There are 60 minutes in an hour. That means there's 1,440 minutes in a day. And for seven days a week, that comes to 10,080 minutes a week. Wow. What is a tithe of your time? 10% of your time for just one week. What would that be? Well, move the decimal place over. That's 1,008 minutes. Or 16.8 hours. 16 hours and 48 minutes minutes. Wow, that's an awful lot of time for a tithe. Uh-huh. On Sunday mornings, you're here two, three hours. Okay, what do you do with the other 14 hours of your tithe a week? Do you spend it in prayer and study? Do you spend it in, spend it in reading the Bible? Do you spend it in worship and service? I mean, I got to thinking about this, Mark. And if you set aside all the time that, uh, that I spend, if I set aside all the time that I spend working for the church, do I tithe my time too to God? And I've got to admit, I'd have trouble coming up with 16 hours a week tithed to God in prayer unconnected to church. Bible study unconnected to work at church. Worship unconnected to work at church. Service unconnected to work at church. I, I, I couldn't find it. I fail to tithe my time to God. I had someone say to me before service, well, Greg, you spend eight hours a day sleeping. Well, no, I don't, but maybe you do. So what if, you, what if you didn't deduct it from the total amount of 24, but only from 16 hours a day? Okay, that's 6,720 minutes awake. 
or 672 minutes or 11.2 hours for your tithe. I'd still fail to come up with a tithe of my waking hours. And that's being generous with time asleep. Huh. How do you spend the tithe of your time? Do you tithe your time? I want to challenge you today. This week, tithe your time. I'll even give you sleep. Go ahead and deduct the eight hours. I challenge you to tithe 11 hours of your waking time. A tithe of your waking hours a week to God. You get two hours here, maybe three if you were here for all three services, all, both services and Sunday school in between. You got Wednesday night service you can come to, and that'll get you an hour right there. You got Bible studies, UMW, all sorts of other stuff you can do. You got service ministries you can be involved in in the church. You have lots of opportunities to tithe your time. But most especially, I want to encourage you to tithe your time in prayer. Not that many hours. Just 2.4 hours a day. And that's if you base it upon the, the full 24-hour period. Let's do it on that one. 2.4 hours a day. Can you spend that in prayer and service and study of the Bible? Yes, you can. But we don't. I want to encourage you this week to tithe your time to God this week. Spend it in prayer. Prayer for your family. Prayer for your church. Prayer for your community. Prayer for your school. Prayer for the nation. Boy, do we ever need it. Prayer for the world. Spend a tithe of your time in prayer and in reading Scripture. You'll be amazed at the riches and glory that God will pour out into your life the riches of His love and His presence, the riches of His grace and peace, the riches of His powerful love will be poured out into your life if only you will tithe your time. And if you'll tithe your time and God will pour out riches to you, how much more will God pour out to you if you tithe your whole existence, including your money? If you ascribe to God glorious value and worth, that a simple tithe is what you pay, is what you return, is what you give with thanksgiving to God, God will pour out a glorious gift in response. He always does. You may not see it immediately. It may take a little while. But I'll guarantee you, you'll be surprised at the glorious gift of God's grace that we poured out into your life. So begin with prayer. Begin with the tithe of your time this week. And allow God's grace to be poured out to you. His riches, His glory in Christ Jesus will live in you. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In your presence, Lord, let me learn at your feet.
You have been listening to a sermon by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of the First United Methodist Church in Commerce, Texas, and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2014 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information and for other sermons by Dr. Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at First United Methodist Church, 1709 Highway 24, Commerce, Texas, 75428. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.